Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by a new interlocutor, a reporter for the Washington Free Beacon, Aaron Sibarian, who has been the person I follow most when it comes to what is happening in elite institutions with imposing a kind of tyranny that reminding a lot of us who were born or brought up in Eastern Europe of the bad old days. Somehow, not in ordinary America, but in elite America, it has become not merely common, but in a way required from authority for people to turn snitch, for students to turn on each other in the worst, most irresponsible, pettiest way. And it turns out that you can just get away with it. These things go on and nobody knows exactly where they come from, who administers them, on what authority or to what purpose, or when is it ever going to stop? This makes for very interesting reading and it makes for a kind of character study in elite college administrations, elite college student bodies, what is happening with these people. And of course, these are things that the rest of America should know about, but doesn't. And so I turn to a man who has been reading up on this, trying to talk to people, trying to find out what's going on and publishing on it. It's a public service. And I am the first man to say I'm grateful for it. Aaron, perhaps please first introduce yourself to our audience since it's your first time on the podcast. And Uh, then tell us, how did you get into this beat? How did you become a reporter on these disturbing ideological diktats? Sure. So my name is Aaron. As Titus said, I'm a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. I guess the story probably begins in around 2015. I was attending Yale University as an undergraduate. It was my sophomore year. And I was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News at the precise moment when campus erupted into this sort of series of woke paroxysms. You know, there's the famous Halloween incident, the stuff about Halloween costumes. Nicholas Christakis being encircled in the Suleiman courtyard and berated. And, you know, I wasn't in the courtyard, but I was in the Yale Daily News building having to deal with the kind of newspaper's own internal convulsions over how to cover this. And as you might guess, the, you know, there was sort of a small group of activists within the school paper who wanted us to just totally side with the protesters. And in part by implying that all their opposition was racist, they they won and the paper just kind of effectively became almost like a soft propaganda arm of this really radical protest movement. And I was you know, dealing with all that as it was going on firsthand. And I was also editing the op-eds of various activists who were saying things like uh, demands for rational discourse are a form of white supremacy or, you know, or something like that. These were Yale students saying this, um, supposedly the best and brightest. And I would say that kind of is what really made me realize, wow, this stuff in elite institutions is powerful and going to spread. And sure enough, it did. (laughs) And, you know, what happened in the Yale Daily News boardroom in 2015 happened in the New York Times editorial board meeting in 2020 when there was that Tom Cotton op-ed that they all threw a fit about. So I guess I would say that Yale gave me kind of a preview of what was going to reach the rest of the country, I mean, three to five years later, depending on how you count. Uh, In around 2020, I also moved over to the Washington Free Beacon from the American Interest. I I started as an editor, but pretty quickly decided, ah, I should probably do writing. That's more what I'm into. And just sort of woke bureaucracy and and how this stuff has been institutionalized in all of our various, in the media, in public health, in law, in all of this, that kind of just organically became my beat. But I would say, you know, it's something that I'm interested in, in part because I've seen it up close and thus both, I think, have some insight into the kind of sociological dynamics, but also some personal sense of alarm at just how insane this stuff can get. Indeed, I think that even though it's more of a big thing now than it was just a few years ago, one reason why you still see some, say, like, well-meaning boomer liberals who think, well, it's a little overkill, but, you know, how... How big a deal is it really? I mean, part of the the sort of deflationary argument they make, I I think, really is just bored of the fact that they have not seen this up close. Um, You know, they really have not experienced it. So, yeah, that's, I would say, the the short kind of genealogy of how how I arrived at this beat. Yeah, it does seem like you were the right man at the right time and in a certain way, which might make you less happy. Um... This is likely to haunt you for years to come. It's, uh, it's not just that it has spread from elite colleges to media and to certain parts of society, certain parts of the political establishments and so on and so forth. 
it's that it does it's not losing steam it's not exactly even been diluted by spreading out but instead the the notion that you can impose ideological dictates in america through elite institutions through administration through accusations that are quasi legal not exactly legal but they do mm. carry various kinds of administrative punishments uh, this notion is not uh, on its way out it's on its way in who knows how it will turn out but uh, yeah it is very funny to see boomers say that there's no such thing as a generational thing <laughs> it's just a, it'll just blow over this would not have been said in the 60s of course at that point everybody yeah. was very excited that it is a generational thing it's uh, indeed a generation with a whole new explanation so uh i i'm also not persuaded by the argument that we're just uh uh getting alarmed for nothing we're just uh not seeing the perspective mm-hmm. from which this all will figure out to the greater good but uh, i would say that uh even aside from what you might say from your experience or what I have thought about from a much greater distance, uh, I we should take seriously, first of all, the people involved in perpetrating this stuff. And these are not uh, happy people. They're, they're not, uh, uh, so to speak, if they are what progress is, it's going to be really, really ugly. It's not going to get nicer and it's not going to get uh, any more welcoming in its next rounds after whatever successes uh, may come. So far, I think success has emboldened the hysteria and uh, encouraged people to think that this is not just your personal madness. It's actually a strategy and it has a pretty good chance of winning. And yes. so uh, I thought uh, since you've been to some extent part of this, that is you've been close as an observer, what are your thoughts on the character of administrators and of students who are involved in these sorts of things that are to the rest of us opaque? There's not yet some great yeah. novel who's going to tell you all about this. So uh, you have to take right. the first stab at it. Well, yeah. So so I think there's a few different things going on. Um there is sort of a cohort of true believers, um, some students, also some administrators who just genuinely buy um, critical race theory or what Wesley Yang calls the successor ideology. They, they buy it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, of course, there is just some autonomous role for ideas here, and we should we should acknowledge that. Um, I, act, I tend to, though, think that... Uh, it's a mistake to just treat these ideas as a kind of free floating mind virus that just takes over people and zombifies institutions through pure force of will. I think often what, what a more profitable mode of analysis is to look at what structural features of our institutions make them right for takeover by this particular set of ideas rather than some others. Um, and without denying that there's just some contingency or, or you know, chance, what have you, I, I think um, there are some structural characteristics of modern institutions, particularly following the Civil Rights Act and kind of the bureaucratic uh, revolution that it spawned um, that make all of our institutions uh, more vulnerable to capture by this ideology and, and, and make this particular ideology very useful to a particularly uh, uh, an entrenched class of bureaucrats. Um, so for the first thing, and this is kind of the most obvious, but, but you know, once you have people whose job it is to monitor discrimination and correct it, you know, they're going to be out of a job if there's no discrimination and racism. Um, so um, as kind of these anti-bias, pro-civil rights, you know, uh, bureaucracies were were entrenched throughout corporate America, throughout you know nonprofits, throughout everything. Um, initially, as a result of legal pressures, although then I think they took on a life of their own, but initially as the result of legal pressures, once you had that institutionalization, you know, you're never going to declare victory and say, ah. You know, we've gotten racism down to an acceptable level. It's no longer a threat. We'll just pack up. No, I mean they have to keep kind of inventing new um, 
moral crises to justify and perpetuate their existence. Um, and the, I mean, this is true of all bureaucracies, but but you know, in in the case of of the bureaucracies that were kind of dead set up to originally manage compliance with civil rights laws, that's really where a lot of modern HR departments come from. Um, you know, it kind of makes sense that they would focus on the moral crisis they would focus on perpetuating is racism, sexism, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of one just long-term structural driver of this. Um, at this point, it's taken on a life of its own. And, you know, it's, it's, it's much less about legal compliance anymore. Um, in fact, when Ronald Reagan pared back civil rights enforcement in the 80s, um, the corporations actually kind of protested and said, or kind of pared back some of the affirmative action stuff. They were like, no, we, we like this stuff now. And that was because it had been sort of institutionalized within the companies and there was an entrenched constituency that, that wanted to perpetuate itself. Um, but so, so, so you have this kind of bureaucratic inertia on the one hand, um, but then on the other, and this is something I, I don't think has been explored sufficiently, one of the very obvious characteristics of wokeness is the obsession with statistical and measurable disparities between different groups. And I think that's in part because uh, wokeness, it's, it's an ideology of bureaucrats and bureaucracies kind of have to look at measurable statistical stuff to assess progress. You know, you, you can't, if discrimination is just sort of in someone's heart, it's like, well, you know, you can't really, the bureaucracy isn't going to be able to prove that um, or really adjudicate what's in people's hearts. But what they can adjudicate is uh, what percentage of, you know, the organization is Black, Hispanic, Latino, you know, how many complaints of a various kind are filed, things of that nature. Um, and so because there's this, this need to make institutions legible and to make social problems legible, um, measurable, statistical, uh, there's kind of a pressure to redefine uh, racism and sexism and these various forms of oppression in statistical terms that kind of, uh, you know, uh, are, are indifferent to intent, right? You hear this phrase, intent doesn't matter. Well, you know, that's an awfully convenient thing to believe for, for a bureaucracy that's just not at all set up to, to, you know, probe intent, but is very much set up to probe disparate impact. That's something that bureaucracies can do very easily. So what I think has happened is that this ideology, part of why it coalesced is that it was, is that it's a very convenient post hoc rationalization for what bureaucracies tasked with uh, solving discrimination kind of already have to do, which is to look at outcomes, because there's just no other way for bureaucracies to work. Um, so I would say that, that those kind of two structural pressures, the, the, the drive to manufacture new moral emergencies on the one hand, and the need to, uh, to conceptualize the moral emergencies in very statistical, um, objective terms, that those two things uh, both kind of created, uh, made our institutions very vulnerable to capture by this ideology, and indeed also explain some of the substantive features of the ideology itself. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, these woke uh, types do come out of a broader type, which is the kinds of elites America now produces. And they are people who, although they don't have much interest in mathematics, are obsessed with statistics or quant. It's not a surprise that in the age of apps, even racism becomes systemic racism. Right? Mm -hmm. in, in an age where you yes. think of the structure or the database that arranges people, uh, yeah, you're going to get the racism that is structural or systemic as well. Mm -hmm. This is how elites look at things. Uh, I would add something to that, that the previous way of looking at the problems of discrimination or racism or anything related to them would have been, are things getting better or worse? 10 years ago, what was the situation? What is the situation now? Has there been improvement? Has there been, on right. the other hand, not improvement, but uh, worsening? Or does it just stagnate? Or, or how, how does it look in the comparison? This is not a view that is favored anymore because it is too past-oriented. 
the view we have now is a kind of instantiation of a future orientation. That is, uh, we have to assume that certain percentages are the correct statistics for society. And if they don't obtain, then that's proof of systemic racism by itself. The extent to which the present differs from uh, this uh, imagined future is the extent to which the present has to be condemned. And so somehow both the statistical studies, uh, the quant bent of our elites, and on the other hand, the future orientation, the belief in progress of some kind are reunited in this uh, you know, misuse of uh, mathematics, this kind of caricature of science. Uh, so that part is not surprising. And of course, you're right that uh, it's always good to look at the conditions. People don't just get jobs and make money out of being woke, but they get prestige. And it is often enough the only way to get prestige. Uh, one, one is... Uh, uh, the more America becomes egalitarian, the more there is a need to get prestige of some kind to distinguish yourself in some way. And this has become uh, much the preferred way, especially for, on the one hand, uh, young people uh, supply some of the needed drama, let's call it. Uh, as you were saying, the, the Yale professor was surrounded yeah. and screamed at by a hysterical young lady and a bunch of other hysterical people. Uh, those were not professionals. They were, you could say, in training. They were apprentices. They were at the hysterical stage, not at the careerist stage of their development as monkeys. But uh, of course, the two, these are stages. They do lead from one to another. And uh, that somehow corresponds to the need for drama in young people's lives. But then there is this other side of it, the administrators of woke, the people who conceive the legal strategies, the people who conceive of the procedures for corporate HR and all of these kinds of ways of getting control over people's lives. So somehow there is a deep need to to repoliticize life, to politicize Yale, to politicize some corporation or another. All of these things have to be repoliticized by people who are themselves rediscovering some of the great passions that underlie politics. Uh, unlike uh, ordinary experience or opinion yeah. nowadays, if you ask Aristotle, he would say that the greatest good there is that you can get in this life is honor. That is the thing that may orients everything in practical life. And, uh, and it's, one is not uh, able to not notice that uh, people like to humiliate other people in these situations they might not be able to secure much honor for themselves, but they are able instantly to dishonor somebody else. Whether that means removing them from the competition for honors or getting a momentary pleasure or, or perhaps other things, getting a, it's part of your portfolio now. If you can dishonor other people, this might recommend you for a future career where you can do it as a pro. Uh, there are, but that is the experience at the time. I uh, read through your tweets and your reports about students at uh, various colleges um, uh, and and the kinds of claims they make about the injustices they face. And this is recurrent, although it's not always a matter. It's not always the problem that it's woke. There are other things, but but it is always uh, uh, this problem. Somehow this is a dishonorable thing. You are asked to acquiesce into, into something that is dishonorable. I, am, uh, I find it very interesting to see that people can never find their way to a language that used to be obvious in America. People, students will say that, well, the, the process is, uh, uh, it's obscure. Like the, the problem, the pro- process by which you're punished by these authorities, that it's, right. that it's obscure. It hasn't been as public as other disciplinary processes at Yale College, to paraphrase one of your reports. And so with mm-hmm. other problems elsewhere, uh, but it's a question of honor. It's not a procedural yeah. question. It's a substantive yeah. question. Why do these administrators who you know, uh, are, are, are supposed to owe you a certain kind of honor treat you in this very dishonorable way? Nobody yeah. seems to have the, 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 way, well, the words to come out and say it, and perhaps it's imprudent to come out and say it, but that's what it is. Yeah. Well, so, so one other, other feature of this that I think is, is worth highlighting is that it tends to... This, this ideology tends to present itself as neutral and as kind of commonsensical um, or, and even as a kind of bureaucratic best practice. Like, well, this is just how you handle it, you know? 
complaints of racism and discrimination. Um, and in some cases, it's almost it's it even goes further. It's like this is science, you know. I mean, and I think that's part of the effect of focusing so much on these disparities. It's well, it's you know, it's just it's just science. I mean, it's just the numbers are right there that there's systemic racism. It's just facts. Um, and you can't argue with that, can you? Um, and uh, you know what? Uh, one one implication of that is it, it kind of removes the the burden of of justification um, from these institutions to kind of to kind of explain why they're doing this. They just say, well, I mean, it's common sense. Like what? Oh, you you don't want us to solve the great moral emergency, which by the way, is just a scientific fact right here. Look at the numbers. Um, you know, so when you do this, it, it kind of, it kind of helps justify some of these sort of absurd due process and procedural violations you're talking about. Cause it's like, well, you know, this isn't even about like justice in the kind of conventional sense. This is just, you know, science. And, and I mean, it, it, the, the thing you're mentioning at Yale, this is actually in the context of their COVID response, right? You know, and I think that the reason in part that that response is so opaque compared to the others is that at least with say Title IX, you know, it's still, it's kind of a facsimile of, of a courtroom. I mean, they, they, obviously it's not quite the same, but like it's, it's sexual assault. That's, that's what's being claimed. And, you know, you can't really decide in an individual case based on statistics, whether it happened, you have to do this whole procedure. So, so, so they kind of adopt some amount of, of due process protections there. Um, in part, I think, because it's seen as a sort of moral issue, but with COVID, it's not even seen as a moral issue. It's just this is science. So we don't have to go through this due process. It's just we, we have administrative technocrats who, who are tasked with public safety. And so, you know, all we're doing here, it's, it's not we're not really adjudicating even punishment. We're just making decisions to, to ensure that everyone is safe um, in an emergency. Um, and the thing is, you see that kind of model then exported to you know, wokeism and to, to criminal justice and to other things as as um, there's this attempt to portray them kind of like COVID as just scientific facts beyond contestation and great um, emergencies that demand um, a kind of permanent state of exception that's managed by uh, these technocrats. Um, and I mean, I think that's that's one reason why you see actually kind of COVID COVID safetyism on the one hand and kind of woke histrionics on the other. There's a lot of similarities, not just in, in the way that they operate with the sort of like surveillance and policing of people's behavior, but also, you know, it's, it's the very institutions and people who do one that, that do the other, like the, the bias reporting systems at a lot of schools, the racism then got repurposed into COVID hotlines, like the same people who, you know, tweet about zero COVID and how, you know, uh, any, and you know, kids can't get vaccinated, so you have to put them all in N95s all day. I mean, these are the same people. Invariably, they have pronouns and BLM in their bio. Like, I mean, it, 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 there's clearly been sort of a merger of COVID and and wokeism, and I think a lot of it does have to do with this this attempt to portray all emergencies as scientific and thus beyond the realm of political contestation. Yeah, I was uh, uh, amused to see in one of your reports on the COVID issue that students are told if they are to be punished for COVID policy violation, it's actually for their own good. It's for your own yes. health as well as the, that mm -hmm. for of everybody else. So that somehow you are your own worst enemy and the people who are punishing you, they're, they're actually just trying to help. There is this uh, deadly catastrophe awaiting and Maybe you're being a little irresponsible because you're 20, but they'll help you save from you from yourself. And indeed, that does suggest that there's there's not going to be any discussion of this. There's nothing sure. that is in principle um, uh, available to contradiction or refutation or difference of opinion. This is simply authority deciding things. And yes. uh, the question is who's on whose side. And these systems are designed indeed to suggest that it might be that the whole of the university is against you. You don't know who accused you of something, of what. You don't know why you are brought in before a hearing. But uh, even if you get off with a warning, that only adds in a way to the humiliation. 
you're not mm -hmm. sure what's going to happen next time. Can you go back to your normal life? Was this a freak occurrence? Or is this an indication that you're not going to go back to your normal life? It's just not going to work that way. And, uh, and so somehow what it means for um, authority to dictate uh, the organization of conduct for elites is very much changing. In, in the woke days, that was quite confrontational. There were the viral videos, it made the press, even some liberals were scandalized, there were differences of opinion. But once you move on to COVID, there are no differences of opinion. Here, elite opinion is unified and uh, there's never enough uh, locking down, yeah. as experience suggests. Well, and uh, so the consequence is that uh, you've criminalized dissent. You've made it unthinkable. Yeah, I mean, although I will say, I, I think that elite opinion on COVID was pretty unified for a lot of the pandemic. I think it is now fracturing to some extent in the United States. I mean, you see within the Democratic Party, there's a there's a growing... There is a growing sense that we need an off ramp and, and skepticism of some of the continued mask mandates, but then there also is this kind of entrenched group of really risk averse people, public health bureaucrats, teachers unions, um, some sort of activists who see any kind of off ramp as, as you know, just a sort of concession to defeat that can't be allowed. Um, I mean, I do think it's interesting also to consider this in, in international context, because my sense is that in most countries, COVID was not as polarized as it was here. Um, and part of why for a long time, I think you saw this hegemonic consensus and even now why it, it's been really hard even for Democrats to dismantle it when they when they kind of know they need to ahead of the midterms um, or they're going to lose even worse. Um, you know, I think part of why it's hard is that that they made this uh, kind of referent, you know, Trump was like this avatar of anti-science, you know, instead of the anti-Christ, he was the anti-science. He doesn't believe in experts like and, and so the entire Democratic Party establishment rallied around this kind of self-understanding that we are the party of experts in science. Um, which which just became identical with you know, whatever the opposite is of what Trump says. Like, you know, if, if Trump says, you know, uh, that COVID isn't a big threat for to kids, well, then clearly what the science has to say is that COVID is horribly dangerous to kids. And of course it's not, it's, it's less dangerous than the flu um, to them, uh, to kids. Uh, and and uh, so, so I think that's the other thing that's happened is, is Trump derangement syndrome really kind of uh, served as this super glue that kind of held a, an elite consensus around COVID together that probably was not maybe even just stronger, but also like more, more inflexible and more kind of uh, deranged and stupid than the elite consensus in a lot of other countries. It's not to say that other countries weren't dumb, like Italy is still making people mask outdoors, which is just insane. Um, but, you know, like in the UK, it's back to normal. Denmark got rid of its restrictions and other Nordic countries are following suite. And I think a lot of that is just these more, the, 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 these relatively more homogenous and less polarized countries just don't have this sense that if they change something or update their beliefs in response to new evidence that they are, you know, committing heresy against the science gods. And I mean, I think that that kind of weird, you know, scientism in the United States, it, it's not just because of Trump, but I mean, he there was definitely kind of a negative partisanship dynamic that that went on there, I think. Yeah, I think that makes sense that uh, there's something uniquely polarized about Americans and that somehow has to do with the fact that government measures have not really had consensus. And of course, that also yeah. has a lot to do with the fact that the United States is just so much bigger than any yeah. country yes. in Europe. And yes. there is more room for dissent. There is more... Um, of a variety of experiences that might lead people to go down this path or that path or the third path or change them with respect to epidemic policy or uh, anything related to that. And uh, so it does seem like uh, it, it makes sense in a way for the, the elite that had least grasp of the society and the country 
to grow most hysterical precisely for that reason. Uh, in other places, there mm. was more consensus, more of a bipartisan agreement, yes. Yes. and the more of a notion that government is not such a partisan issue. And yes. uh, so uh, that's a, I th- and I think it's, it's, it's also been simply uh, the case that in other places, or most other places, of course, though not everywhere, it was not thought that COVID policy polemics would be involved in an electoral contest as well the yeah yeah so you know there is not a a, a big quarrel in french politics although there's a presidential election upcoming about uh, these kinds of restrictions there's not some something comparable to the crazy stuff going on in america and uh, or there was an election in canada there's one upcoming in australia again not not the kinds of polemical drama that one finds in America, even though there's a big partisan contest coming up. So that seems to be a uniquely American problem that uh, encouraged uh, a certain derangement that uh, yeah. was to some extent inevitable. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because on the one hand, um, the fact that we are so big and diverse, I think did, did result in this kind of hyperpolarization that then entrenched these irrational restrictions in uh, elite bureaucracies. And then those kinds of restrictions do, at least in blue states, kind of filter down into the broader society. Um, On the other hand, you know, the fact that America is more diverse does mean that there's more pockets, as you say, of possible resistance to um, the kind of you know, elite histrionics that the diversity serves to generate. Um, And I suppose, you know, I'm often kind of pessimistic, but one thing maybe to be optimistic about is that, you know, ground zero for wokeism is the country that is so big and diverse that it's uniquely hard for wokeism to conquer it. You know, it's it's like, it's like Napoleon trying to conquer Russia. I mean, I mean, I I think, I think, you know, I think wokeism is going to have an it's it, it's already conquered a lot, and and people are going to experience it, and it it is hard to escape. But it's also, uh, I think, proven pretty difficult for wokeism to totally pacify the United States. And I mean, you know, a, a joke I make is that everyone worries about schools uh, indoctrinating students into CRT, but you know, American schools are so shitty that like. They can't indoctrinate anyone because they're too incompetent. So it was like, I mean, there is like a scary generational shift. You know, I don't want to downplay any of it, but like, there's also probably just a lot more room for like small bands of resistance to form in the United States. And I do suspect that that will serve in the long run to kind of limit and even potentially dismantle this regime. I think it's going to take a while. I think. In the meantime, it's going to be, get pretty bad, and especially we say like the crime stuff, you know, the, the in blue cities, like just the, the inability to keep law and order because you're afraid of racism is is, is a problem. Um, but you know, in the in the long run, there there may be reasons to be more more bullish on the United States than kind of the the short run uh, tyranny would would make it seem. Yeah, uh, it's by no means the case that the turmoil is all bad, since after all, it might also wake people up. Uh, it's, yeah. it's harder to escape the notion that there's something crazy going on that you maybe need to find out about. And of course, the frequency of election might also help uh, slow some things down and even reverse some gains. It's mm-hmm. not forever. The, the bureaucracy seems to be forever. The, everything that can be attached to the bureaucracy seems to be forever, but uh, there are some things still involved in a political contest or election. So uh, those things might not even last the decade. If we take it from 2014 or 2013 or thereabouts, some, there have been already some things reversed and some things might be reversed in 2022. We'll see. But uh, I think you are essentially right that the, the confrontational side of wokeism has not helped it win everywhere. And there's probably uh, an argument that uh, could find uh, that one could find a lot of evidence for that it works much better in liberal enclaves than it does in partisan contests. 
differences of religion, ideology, yes. sometimes maybe even just region and the way of life, encourage people to stand their ground. And, uh, and, and so they don't make for woke victories. The woke thing uh, got uh, put together with the COVID thing in 2020 due to all the uh, city burning. That's an advanced form of crime. That's political crime. Yeah. At this point. And yeah. it's uh, a matter of justice, I'm told. So at that point, it became possible to install a different kind of authority and to require a different kind of consensus, uniformity, silence that woke uh, causes had not been able to generate. Mm. And so you can see why that would, uh, that would mean uh, it's a great alliance for both sides. Um, uh, you can add to that uh, what we see with uh, mm. this uh, whole um, attempt to censor Joe Rogan. This does not come from psychopathic kids. It comes from elite institutions, from the president, from all sorts of people who are supposedly the moderates or the liberals or the people committed to some vision of American liberty, mm -hmm. including some kind of creative individualism and self-expression. These are the people who want to have a kind of ideological diktat. And um, so yeah. there's yet a, a third level of this alliance, which I think is not just an alliance of convenience, but somehow uh, you know, there's there's a kind of correspondence here between the woke tendency to use administrative courts to ruin yeah. people's lives, and on the other hand, the notion that COVID will be treated through bureaucracy. And these bureaucracies come around to the idea that what a public health consists in is punishing the unvaccinated. Yes. Um, it's not an obvious proposition. And here's the president of America saying that the vaccinated who are protected from the disease have to be protected from the unvaccinated who are vulnerable. This is on the this is kind yeah. of close to madness, but well, uh, it very quickly became accepted by all the reasonable liberals as opposed to the foaming at the mouth times. Yeah, I mean, I think the part of the other thing that happened there is you had this very risk averse contingent of American liberals who who were afraid that even a mild breakthrough case, you know, would result in long COVID or something. And, and, and look, you know, now granted, I, I will say, so, so I agree with you that the messaging was incoherent. I mean, I do think um, during even the Delta wave, the vaccine reduced transmission, didn't totally stop it, but it, it reduced it quite a bit. And it was not unreasonable, I think, for like a risk averse person who just was like, I don't really want to feel like I feel like shit for two weeks to be like, oh, you know, I'm kind of annoyed with these like unvaccinated people who, who do pose some risk of making me feel like crap for two weeks and possibly losing my sense of taste and smell for longer. Like that just general sense of, you know, F you for inconveniencing me. I mean, I, I'm actually sympathetic to that. I think with Omicron, because it, Omicron without decimating the protection against severe disease so thoroughly decimated the protection against infection, yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you know, the mandate stuff doesn't really make any sense. And also, you know, really what, what this, this whole thing is about, um, it, what, the way we should think about it, in my view, is just can society function and are hospitals overwhelmed? And the, 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 my, my view is to the extent that we're going to treat the unvaccinated differently, it should really be with a very narrow eye, if we're going to do it at all, to making sure that, like, you don't have hospital systems overwhelmed, that, that, that people, say, who have, like, cancer can get the care they need, you know, because not all the hospital beds are taken up. I mean, I think that's, like, a legitimate goal for public policy, and it's legitimate to ask, you know, are there maybe places where, like, say, you know... It, it, are we going to maybe reserve a certain number of hospital beds for COVID and just say, you know, beyond that point where they're not like not, not going to let this kind of occupy any more of our hospital capacity precisely because, you know, most of the people who are here for it are, are unvaccinated. I mean, stuff like that, I think would be a more targeted and potentially justifiable measure, but it's telling, as you say, that like, that's not the way that it's been framed, it's all about these Vax QR codes or whatever that that clearly are not actually going to solve the real problem that we have now, um, to the extent we have one at all with Omicron. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that's because a lot of this became about, you know, the unvaxxed or unpure and are, you know, evil and bad. And yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm torn because on the one hand, I don't agree with the anti-vaxxers and would, I wish that, you know, they would 
just take the damn shot. But on the other hand, it's very clear that their kind of function in the liberal, you know, their kind of semiotic function in the in the liberal like system of of signs and signifiers is, is to serve as like a, a stand-in for all that is bad and evil about the backwards, you know, Trumpist rubes. Um, and I I do understand why, you know, that has alarmed people. And indeed, I do think it's alarming that we're sort of, you know, conceptualizing them in this way, rather than just as like a social problem that's unfortunate and needs to be, you know, dealt with, like, instead, it's, you know, these are like the embodiments of, you know, Trump as Satan or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, right, the, the people who refuse to get the vaccine are somehow a sign that authority can't take everybody over, that the mantra of follow the science, or even a reasonable, if we, we've lived in a different world where elites were reasonably trying to enforce some kind of public policy on the basis of consensus, uh, there would still be people who are anti-vax. You can't persuade everybody. Yeah. And the question is, okay, so how are we going to deal with the fact that some people are not amenable to persuasion? And right. uh, that these people have become the focus of uh, this hysteria, this apocalyptic vision uh, that suggests that uh, these elites are not normal people. They're, they're crazy is what I'm saying. They would not wonder... react. To, well, you look at how many people have yeah. been shot. Seems pretty good. It's, and, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you know, and, and it, look at this point, like, you know, I think enough people have had it at least in blue states that we're just not absent some much, much more virulent variant. We're just not really in much danger of the hospitals being overwhelmed at, at this point. And, and you know, I, the other thing I'd say is, is this is probably, I doubt this will happen. It's too optimistic, but if like everyone, if libs just kind of said, you know what, we're done. Like, we're not, we're not going to make this a big thing. We just don't care anymore. You're vaxxed and done. And then just like people stop talking about it. I wonder if then that might depoliticize it a bit. And then if like a doctor, you know, says to the anti-vax guy, Hey, you know, just for the record, like with your age and health conditions, you you may want to get the shot. I, I wonder if more people would say, ah, yeah, all right, what the hell, you know, whatever, if it weren't such a political thing. And, you know, it, it, the, the politicization is, is really a both sides problem. I mean, both sides politicized it in their own way. But like, you know, once that starts, it, it, you kind of have to have both, you know, as long as as long as liberals keep treating it the way they've been treating it, it's going to remain political. So, you know, a precondition for for depoliticizing it would be a pretty seismic change in liberal messaging. Um, and we'll see. I, I'm not optimistic that they're going to affect that change. But, you know, that maybe if if things do kind of normalize in the next year or two, some of the anti-vax stuff will kind of dissipate naturally. Maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think experience suggests that these sorts of events in America are a recruitment ground for activists and some kind of electoral contest down the line. There's, you know, yeah. 2000 saw various kinds of uh, trouble and turmoil that then led to electoral change, yes. 2006, 2008, and so on and so forth. On the other side, starting in 2010, the Dems in the first decade, the Republicans in the second decade did uh, proceed from these kinds of public turmoils and social strife onto organization, political uh, positions, and eventually some kind of change in the representatives you elect. And so that's what I expect will happen this time too. And it'll be interesting to see where does it take more effect is it going to be that Democrats somehow learn from uh, the, the stuff they've been doing and saying over the last two years that they need to change who their politicians are somewhat, or it's going to be Republicans, possibly both. My guess would be that it's actually going to be Republicans. Uh, but, uh, you know, who knows? But this yeah. has happened before, right, with uh, protests from the anti-war protests of 2004 mm-hmm. onwards to 2006, 8, 10, and so, of course, also with the Tea Party, as I suggested, and the Trump rallies, on the other hand, 
uh, these things work in changing to a significant mm-hmm. extent political rhetoric and maybe other issues of policy and strategy as well in elections. And they certainly work in both mapping and spurring on the change in electorates. Uh, the more people saw who was at Trump rallies or that there were Trump rallies, the more some people yeah. decided that they don't want to vote Republican anymore. Suburban college educated types, mostly whites. Right. But so also other people started moving into the tent. After four years of Trump, there were a lot of people uh, famously, or I guess if you're a liberal, infamously, a lot of Hispanic people yeah. uh, started voting yeah. Trump. They saw four years of it and decided that more of this would be a good idea. It spurs changes even as it maps on these transformations in electoral demographics. And I think this will do that too, that with a certain lag, people will realize that we have all learned something about each other here. And mm-hmm. it's going to be harder to live with each other next year than it is this one. I don't expect a normalization. I'm sorry to say. I don't think it's a bad thing. It might mean that people at least uh, lose some of their hopes that and, and uh, accept something more reasonable. I think a lot of the hysteria we're dealing with is people just have unrealistic hopes of what you can do. Uh, this is yeah. what I was trying to get at with this whole anti-vax uh, ideology and liberalism. These people really and truly want to tell people, follow the science, and the people should follow the science. What do you do if people disagree with that? You might want to do horrifying things to them. Institutionally, not personally, but institutionally, you might want to throw their lives away if possible. So, you know, control of information, censorship, all of these things, maybe that's what enlightenment now requires. Maybe that's what progress now requires. We tried it the other way. It didn't work. So you yeah. can see how a certain vision of liberalism right. will only be, as people like to say, now radicalized, as will of well, course, it, uh, on the other side. And this is this is also, I think, in large part just because of the internet, right? You know, with the, I mean, the Joe Rogan stuff and the misinformation panic. It's a lot of this is because if you have a total free for all with a truly global online commons, you know. That that is just such a different kind of informational landscape than has ever existed previously in human history. That sort of the old liberal values about you know free speech, whatever, don't really just work as well under these different technological conditions. I mean, it really. I mean, look, like I think I think the Rogan panic is ridiculous, but you know, it is true that like misinformation can reach more people now and be a lot more damaging. Like that's true, and that's one reason I think that you see kind of free speech culture eroding. It's because there's a change in technological conditions that kind of make the old values seem quaint and naive. Um, On the other hand, right, precisely because there's this inner networked uh, informational architecture, you know, if, if some people have access to that because they're, you know, the approved voices and other people don't because they're deemed to be spreading harmful misinformation, I mean, you basically have a dynamic where like a few billionaires can just like control like massive amounts of information and you know, decide who can reach billions of people and who can't. Um, and I think that's uh, terrifying and Fundamentally, the real problem here is that just these kind of speech platforms in the age of the internet that that's, you know, cross boundaries and borders and all this. I mean, I think they're just, they're not really sustainable in their current form. And we probably have to change the structure of these media or, or yeah, get that's them all together. I mean, I mean, yeah, you know, you know, like you can, you can bitch and moan about, about how they should just believe in free speech. But the reality is like, you know, uh, you can't really, apply, like, it's very hard to apply First Amendment principles to a platform that has not just millions, but billions of people on it across, you know, different continents, multiple continents. Like, it's just, you know, the First Amendment probably does not scale up to that point. So it's not really surprising or even, I think, particularly, it's hard to fault the platforms for, like, introducing some content standards that are, that are, you know, more censorious than the First Amendment, but it's like, well, that creates all these other issues. So, I mean, I think the only really answer here is just like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that we revoke Section 230 protections precisely to lead to a litigation death spiral that just destroys all these platforms because they're just bad and like can't be allowed to exist in their current form without like destroying humanity. That's, that's kind of my radical take to which I'm, I don't know if I agree with it, but I'm, 
sympathetic to it. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of change coming because indeed both what made the left the left and what made the right the right has uh, blown up. You can no longer be a liberal because you can't believe in free speech because of the misinformation problem. And on the other hand, you can no longer be a free market conservative because you end up saying uh, what's happening on Facebook is somehow Mark Zuckerberg's private concern. And uh, yeah, yeah, both I know, of these positions ridiculous. are now psychopathic. They were once just like it's 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 old yeah. people saying crazy things because they don't know the tech, but now it's old people saying these things and trying to keep a political moral force on these things. Right, it was long past them by. This is psychopathy. Somehow these things right. have to change, and where it whatever I mean, it is that Facebook is, it's not. You cannot define it simply by free speech. It I, also involves property think, rights, for example, right? So like somehow yeah. there's got to be a much bigger and very different uh, arrangement. It also involves rights to petition for the for redress of grievances and, and so on and so forth. Rights to assembly are involved in it. And so it's a, it's a much more complicated problem and uh, it will require something even more radical than dealing with Section 230. I mean, I mean, the... The most, maybe the, the I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that you do common carrier regulation, right? The way that you regulate like utilities, um, and you know, I, I mean, I think that would be better. Although, be, in part because you know, it's their speech platforms. You know, they're not just supplying electricity. I, I mean, I think that particular feature of them is always going to create this concern about misinformation and stuff. And, and it just, so, so even the common carrier thing, I think it would be an improvement, but I think there would still be all this pressure for there to be carve outs or whatever for, well, you know, but like misinformation or racism is its own thing. You know, you kind of have to, I don't know. Some kind of regulation must come, but yeah. to have new regulation, you have to have a new conception of what is it that these people are doing? And I right. think that would mean saying something like, we are not happy, but we are afraid that Twitter is now America's public space. Yeah. And that requires new ways of thinking about this, including arbitrating political conflicts, since that's what it will manifest. And that cannot be left in the hands of a corporation, but it cannot be left in the hands of one of the parties without the other ones going mad. So it's going to be a, a very complicated transformation to effect. And I think all of these things show that various aspects of enlightenment and the, the liberalism that promotes enlightenment, uh, all of mm -hmm. this stuff is now in question. How you treat college students and how you ask them to treat each other from an elite administrative position has to mm -hmm. do with what do you think you need these people to be for when they take over the leadership of the country? And how do you deal with things like elite media and what kinds of messaging is allowable, which kind is punished, where are you allowed to make money out of your speech, who has to be banned. This, again, has to do with enlightenment. Uh, enlightenment ultimately must say, like, the news is good news. Yeah. When the news becomes bad news, there's a crisis. And uh, so that's what we're going through now. And uh, so I think all of these things do tie up together. And you could say that on the one side, you have a vision that stretches from the statistical racism all the way to the notion that the databases of big technology is going to clean up society. They're going to figure out who's a bad person. They're going to figure out the avenues of radicalization and prevent them. They're going to be hand in hand with law enforcement to get the bad guys. Uh, that's, uh, that leads to a complete annihilation of the liberal in liberalism while maintaining the structures that give authority and prestige to a certain class of people. It's weird, yeah. but of course uh, it is as with the students in these colleges who are wondering why are they being treated in this dishonest, opaque way? Uh, well, you're on the wrong side of something here that you don't even understand, but it has to reorder society just so that people who are on top of society can figure out what's going on. Uh, but you can't say that. So, <laughs> so this is a massive conflict that somehow has to do also, you could see it again in COVID as surely as in these college issues and other things that uh, there has got to be some kind of bureaucratic way for the CDC, for example, to run people's lives. And if you can't do that, then we're going to have these endless quarrels and endless screaming at each other and so on and so forth. So there's an elite desire to replace the political contest and the diversity that makes California and Florida very different politically, uh, replace that with some kind of centralized bureaucratic authority that uh, 
has all these yeah. other downstream requirements of control of information, property rights, and so on and so forth. Do you have a right to make a job, to get a job? Do you have a right to go to your job? It's, uh, it's, a very, it's very debatable. It's very debatable. So all of these things were came as and went in some cases as shocks. It was 2020 or it was 21, and all of a sudden your right to make a job that transformed very suddenly. But uh, obviously over the long term, these all of these questions have to be arranged in a more coherent way about who decides who what your rights are with respect to speech, but also to property and with respect to everything else. And so somehow we, both in the sense that these are young people, they're an avant-garde by definition. This is when their habits and convictions will be formed for when they are adults, but also in the sense that these are elite questions in the media, in the university, in bureaucratic rule, whether it's corporate HR or, of the, or the FDA and the CDC. All of these things are, are about the structure of authority. And uh, somehow we, we don't know what's, what's shaking up. We can see that there's turmoil, but not what, which way is this turning? What is growing here? I think we're somehow stuck with seeing contradictions and problems and conflicts without having a notion of quite, what would this look like as a party platform? If somebody's going to run on this in 2024, what would it look like? What's the, this new manifesto, so to speak? But I think that's somehow necessary to understand, to see what yeah. is it elites think they're doing and what is it they want to do to the rest of us? Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, maybe just to sort of wrap up one one component of the platform. Again, I don't know exactly how you do this, but so much of, of this crap is driven by nonprofits, you know, NGOs, uh, which traditionally I think, you know, Republicans have this kind of hands-off attitude toward. But, um, you know, especially like, say, the health equity stuff, I mean, there's this entire network of nonprofits that are all propagating this and trying to sort of institutionalize race conscious medicine, you know, in, in, in hospitals and in state governments and what have you, you know, I mean, the, the, you, I'm sure you've heard about this stuff where uh, uh, white people are penalized effectively when trying to get monoclonal antibodies because, you know, people of color get extra points you know, in the, in the triage schemes. Right. I mean, the thing is, it's, yeah, it's not just like it's some random bureaucrat in some state department, state health office. It's like, there's this huge juggernaut of nonprofits in some cases, you know, nonprofits that receive federal money who are all pushing for this kind of thing. Um, and I don't know how you, limit their influence without sort of unacceptably trampling liberal values about free association you know it's like i don't i don't want josh holly to go in there and just say well we'll like you know ban all the health equity nonprofits. I mean, no that's you can't do that but but you also can't really just like let them keep going as is with no interference because these things are not going to be satisfied until like the entire government and every hospital system in the united states has adopted this explicitly race conscious and some would say racist uh, uh, view of how medicine should be allocated. So, you know, you, you gotta, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get over the small government nostrums at some, at some point and recognize that like, you know, these NGOs effectively are like, yeah, you know, serving almost as like a kind of private government or, or, or trying to influence the actual government. And you gotta, you gotta do something about that. That's an entire other subject, NGOs. And another thing that is widely underreported Indeed, it's not just a problem for conservatives, but I think for liberals too, to save liberalism is, among other things, to save it from the oligarchy that seems to dominate so many institutions, yes. not directly or yes. indirectly. And we'll see how many takers there are and whether there is some kind of coalition that can be formed once people become aware of these shocking developments. For now, we'll let us close here. I believe we have offered our audience a sample of some of your reporting and the thinking behind them and the experiences that set you on this path. So I'm myself pleased to have heard how come you got involved in this and how wide your interests in the matter are, because I think these things will follow you for a generation. These will be massive political transformations and yeah. you have become aware of it I, at the inception or at any rate, quite near. I don't have to worry about money. 
kind of a perverse incentive structure built into my own line of work where like the worse the stuff gets, the more remunerative, you know, anti-woke journalism becomes. So yeah, it's a career. Yeah. It's unhappy in a certain way, but uh, something that has to be done. And so even in that way, right, we are locked in a conflict we cannot escape from. We have to talk about this and it becomes a profession and we get paid for it. And so do the people on the other side. And mm. so somehow this has to come to a head. Yeah. All right. Thanks for your time. Everybody, this is Aaron Sibarium. You can find him at the Washington Free Beacon and, of course, on Twitter, where everybody in the writing business now is and trying to escape. All the best, Aaron. And uh, let's chat another time about some others of these subjects. There should be an entire series of underreported subjects in if conservatives were not doing parasitical journalism, but looking to find out what is really happening in America and what does it matter to conservatives, what would they be talking about? the sorts of things you're talking about would be high on the list yeah thank you so much for having me all the best all right